Hello, Data Radicals. Let's start today with a spoiler alert. If you've never seen the movie The Sixth Sense, then stop what you're doing right now and go watch it. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to play the alert, and when it's over, hit pause. For everyone else that's seen the movie, you can keep going. So now that you've seen the movie, you should know The Sixth Sense was released in August of 1999, and it became one of the biggest movies of all time. M. Night Shyamalan wrote and directed the film to create a terrifying, chilling reality. But what ultimately made that movie so successful was the twist ending, where they reveal that Bruce Willis's character had been a ghost the entire time. Behavioral economist George Lowenstein calls this the gap theory of curiosity. He argues that, quote, gaps cause pain. When we want to know something but don't, it's like having an itch that we need to scratch. To take away the pain, we need to fill the knowledge gap, end quote. If you're a data analyst, another way of looking at your job is to fill the gap, to tell the story that allows the data and the world around us to make sense. And no, this is not about telling the story of how you got to the insight, how you first sourced the data, then profiled it, then appended the data set, then built a scatter plot, and then applied a regression. No one but your manager cares about that story. This is about making your data tell the story about the world that produced it. Today, we're speaking with Cole Nussbaumer Naflik, founder and CEO of Storytelling with Data which shockingly enough is about storytelling with data. After you listen to this episode, I can't guarantee your storytelling will pack the same punch as The Sixth Sense, but I can guarantee you're gonna leave this episode ready to make your next presentation a heck of a lot stronger. And you're never gonna look at tables the same way again. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Cole Nussbaumer Naflik, founder and CEO of Storytelling with Data. In this episode, she and Satyan discuss the fundamental principles of storytelling, the importance of public speaking, and how feedback can help transform organizations. This podcast is brought to you by Elation. Elation enables people to find, understand, trust, govern, and use data with confidence. More than 25% of Fortune 100 companies use Alation to support data-driven decision-making. Organizations like Cisco, Pfizer, and U.S. Foods drive data culture and innovation with Alation. Learn more about Alation at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Ready to tell your story? Well, you can't just jump right in. Before you can begin, you have to identify your audience and their expectations. I would say this is the most important factor when communicating with data, when communicating in general, because the go-to that we often default to when we're communicating is we communicate first and foremost for ourselves. I want to communicate the project I just finished or the analysis I completed or the answer I found. When really we want to shift that around and think about when we're speaking, when we're presenting, right? Whether it's formally on a stage or in a meeting with colleagues, that we're doing that first and foremost for the people who are on the receiving end of that. And when we do so, the more we can take their needs and desires into account, the more successful that interaction is likely to be. 
Some people want to know how much it's going to cost. And so you can think of, well, that's the audience I'm communicating to. I can lead with that so that then we can get that back into the detail after that need is sated. Or for the people who want to know the theory and all of the details that you looked at along the way, that's a different path that you take when you know that's what your audience is going to crave and need. So a story then on some level starts with knowing your audience ends with some call to action broadly defined. What are the great elements of a story? Or so when you when somebody says, well then what is a story? Like where does it start? What it, what 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 is it, what are the elements of a story so I can learn them? Yeah. So I, I'm going to talk about two different structures of story. And, and they're really the same structure. One is just more simplified because I find for individuals, for organizations that haven't been using these tactics before, going from you know a standard monthly report to, all right, folks, today I'm going to tell you a story can be too big of a gap to try to leap across. So I think there are steps we can take in a- along the way where we're still sort of using story, um, but maybe not going full-fledged. So the simplest version of a story for me has a plot. It has some sort of twists and an ending. And you can think about how different business scenarios or different analytical projects might map into this, right? The plot is we had this question about this piece of our business. So in the twists, we explored the data and we found these things that we expected, but we found this one thing that was interesting that we didn't expect that it can actually change the way we do things. And so now ending is the action that we can take based now on this new information. So it's a simple form of story, right? Plot, twist, ending. And the cool thing about this simple story is you can apply it to, you can apply it to a whole communication, but you can also apply it to a single graph, right? So if I have a graph and I, it's one that I want to communicate to somebody else, I can do this simple story about the graph, right? What does the graph tell me? What is the new piece? What's the twist? And what's the ending, right? Where the ending is my articulation of the takeaway I want my graph to get across. And this is an easy practice to do that will help how you communicate with graphs. It's just for each one, write a sentence about what you want your audience to see or to know. And then if it makes sense, write that sentence directly on the page, right? Or do things to draw attention to that part of your graph uh, so that you are, you're storytelling even in these little ways, uh, which really in that case is just answering the question of so what, right? What's the takeaway? What do I need to know? And making that clear. So it's a simple version of story. I think we can get a little bit more nuanced though and build upon this. And so what we tend to teach in our workshops is the narrative arc, which is just another way to characterize stories that's a little bit further fleshed out compared to that simple story structure that I mentioned. So narrative arc starts out with a plot. Right? There's a sense of place and time. There might be characters or you know different players. Uh, and then as we move through time, tension is introduced. And this builds in the form of a rising action and it reaches a point of climax, right? Where tensions are their highest. Then there's a falling action that acts as a buffer that leads us to the ending. And so, you know, we talked about message a little bit earlier, but one of the things that we teach people to really reflect upon when they are considering their audience and their message is what's at stake, right? What stands to break or, you know, 
what are the risks if the thing that we need to happen doesn't happen, right? Or the flip side of that, what are the benefits or the good things that are going to come out of the action that we're trying to inspire? Right. What are the stakes? What are we playing for? Exactly. Because then if we think of that arc, right, and the tension that we've brought to light, that tension plays back directly into that what is at stake. And it's not what's at stake for us as the communicator or the analyst, it's what's at stake for our audience. Because if we can frame our story in the context of that, and the tension that we bring to light is meaningful for them in that way, because it taps into something that's at stake for them, then the ending to our story becomes what the audience can do to resolve the tension that you've brought to light. And so it really brings the audience into our story in a way that I think often gets missed when we communicate in a business setting. It's often when we communicate in a business setting, the go-to approach is this very linear, right? Here's the problem we set out to do in the first place. Here's all the things that we did to the data. You know, here's the long list of caveats about the data and about our methodologies and what we went through. And it's this very long drawn out linear process that over the course of which it's very easy to ignore our audience. And for me, that's the biggest shift, the biggest benefit that happens when we think about, rather than communicating in this linear way, rethinking things in the shape of this arc. Because to have that shape, it means that there's tension present. And and this isn't about making up tension, right? There's always tension present if you have something worthy of communicating. It's just about figuring out what that is in this scenario and how do you adequately bring it to light for your audience? And, you know, where do you get their input versus push them to do something? And how do you make, again, all of those pieces of the puzzle fit together? There's a lot of different nuances that play into every different scenario when we communicate. And yet, oftentimes, we reach for the exact same progression, the exact same solution when we need to communicate, rather than thinking about what does success look like this time? How can I align what I create, how I talk through it, how I prepare myself, uh, you know, whether I pre-wire with my audience or get with people ahead of time? How do I make all of those things work together in a way that's likely to help me achieve the outcome that I'm after? Because when we do that, we can do a lot more. The Sixth Sense is a perfectly crafted film. Surprisingly, it didn't come out fully formed. Many scenes were left on the cutting room floor because they didn't advance the narrative. Deciding what to leave out can be incredibly difficult. So how do you decide what to cut? Cole says it comes down to your audience, your story, and the time that you have to tell it. If we think of stories in other realms where we know them, books, movies, right? It's not this smooth single ascent and descent. It's more like a jagged mountain where things are going up and down sort of all of the time. And they're pushing us forward as they do. And so that's useful over the course of, you know, a 400-page book or a two-hour movie. Or as we're doing the analysis behind the scenes to get to the answer or the thing that we need to have, need to have happen. But what we don't need to do is communicate every single one of those peaks from the jagged mountain to every single audience. So it's a matter of taking our specific audience in a specific instance and figuring out what combination of pieces do I need to curate now for them? And how do I weave those together? And so even that for the same story looks very different from for the venture capitalist, right, with whom you've got 30 seconds or whatever to your finance partner who's going to want the details before they give you the budget to sign off to do some of these things. And so 
the work behind the scenes has to happen. But I think when it comes to then how we communicate it to others, if we think of it like this curation process of picking the pieces of all of that now, we need the context of the rest of it in case questions come up, but how can we make it meet the needs of this given scenario? A director has to wear a lot of different hats. They have to deal with camera angles, approve costumes, and of course, work with the actors. I guarantee you there are some parts directors enjoy more than others, but all parts are necessary to make a great movie. I know many of you data radicals don't enjoy public speaking, but like it or not, it's part of our job. And Cole says if we don't cultivate that skill, it'll show up in the impact your work will have. Then you will be limited in your career. Or maybe the way to turn that around, right, is there is so much potential for the person who has strong technical skills and can speak about that in ways that make other people feel engaged and attentive, right? People will pay more attention to your data and what you do with it if you can talk to them about your data and what you do with it in ways that makes them want to keep participating, right? And become part of that discussion. And it's not easy. And it's a particularly, I think, not easy for people who are in technical roles because it is likely they are in technical roles because they didn't want to have to do this stuff, right? Me, I am an introvert. My most comfortable place in the world is by myself in a room behind my computer screen. But I wouldn't be able to drive much change if that is where I stayed. And so for me personally, it was finding an area that I was passionate about and then realizing I can take that passion and I can harness it and I can hone it in ways that will help more people. And I talked earlier about being strategic about how you communicate. When you're in a room with people and you're talking to them, you get real-time data the entire time because you get to watch them and you get to see these micro facial movements, right? When brows furrow or lips get pursed, uh, you can move around the room and as you do, do so, that changes how people behave. There are all of these really interesting ways that you can use yourself as the communicator of information that I, I didn't understand at all when I was starting out and making pretty graphs. Right. This is all stuff that came later when I was teaching and at the point where I got to know my content well enough that I was comfortable then to be able to really focus on not only what I'm saying, but how I'm saying it, right? How I use my voice, how I use my body, how I use my hands, uh, when to be in the front of the room so people can see me and my materials, when to move around and be somewhere else entirely so that that focus changes. And it's it's a different sort of art form, I think, that I wish, you know, going back to your question of, is this being taught in schools? Like This sort of stuff should be being taught because it can be learned and honed, and it shouldn't be a trial and error thing that everybody has to individually figure out over time. Every movie director has their favorite tips, tricks, and best practices. M. Night Shyamalan is famous for his twist endings and long takes. Spike Lee invented a unique dolly shot. Martin Scorsese loves to use Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones. Are there tips, tricks, and best practices that data storytellers use? 
Yeah, absolutely. It, and tables is one of those things that it surprises us, right? Because it, it feels simple. A, t- a table is usually the first thing we reach for when we're aggregating our data. But when you think of how people process information, right? If you imagine a table in front of you, you've got rows and columns and data in each. You're reading that table. So you're scanning down uh, columns across rows. You're trying to compare values, which means you're holding information in your head as you're trying to compare things. It's just, this is actually a highly taxing cognitive process uh, because when you use a table, you're using your verbal system. And that's the big benefit that we get of thinking about showing data in graphs because that now is accessing our visual system. And our visual system is much faster at processing information when it's designed well than our verbal system, which means data in a graph will typically get across more quickly than data in a table, for example. And so when we are showing data, so one is the type of graph we choose, right? And oftentimes it's worthy of iterating through different views of our data, both both as part of the analytical process so we can get a better understanding of the nuances of the data, but then also as we're thinking about how we might subsequently communicate that information to someone else, right? What's going to help create that aha moment of understanding? What do I want my audience to see? Am I getting them to compare things or see a trend over time? And the answers to each of these questions can help point you to a good sort of menu of graphical options that might work. And it really is the common few that you know that you'll be reaching for most of the time, right? Bar charts, line graphs, because these are familiar. And and I think one thing to be aware of as we're designing graphs is just when we use something that's unfamiliar to our audience, we are introducing a hurdle. Because we have to get them either to want to spend enough time with the thing to figure out how to read the thing, or if we're presenting it live, we have to keep their attention long enough to make that happen. So you just want to make sure if you are using something novel or something less familiar to your audience, that that's a trade-off that is worthwhile. Because there's going to be some amount of time that has to be spent to understand how to read the data before they can get to the data. When oftentimes there's opportunity to just use a bar graph or a line graph and get people focused less on how to read the graph and more quickly on what does a graph say? Why is this interesting? In some cases, we need to reach for something new because or different because that observation isn't obvious in some of these more common forms. In The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan uses the color red very sparingly. This helps to draw the audience's attention during dramatic moments. Apparently, data storytellers can do the exact same thing. It's really thinking about for each time you show a graph, what is it you want your audience to see? And how do you get rid of the things that might be impeding that from happening? That's where clutter can come in, right? Grid lines and other visual elements that may not be necessary. So we can think about pushing those to the background or getting rid of them entirely. And then where do we want our audience to look first? What's the most important thing for them to see? How can we use contrast sparingly there to make that happen fast? And typically the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to focusing attention more quickly is being sparing and selective in where and how you're using color. So we'll often decide our design graphs in shades of gray and then use color really sparingly and intentionally to draw your audience's attention to where you want them to look. 
And we talked about a strategy earlier for for each graph you want to show, write a sentence about that graph and then put that sentence with the graph. And those two things together can work really well, right? Neither takes very long and both can go an extreme way in terms of making your graph understandable to your audience quickly, which is use color sparingly to focus your attention on where you want them to look and then use words with that that tell your audience why you want them to look there can take a graph, even if it maybe wasn't the ideal graphical form or there's some clutter present or other issues and still make it work in that instance. So just a few of the basic sort of lessons that we teach. And and none of it is rocket science, right? It it is all stuff that when you step back and think about it, it makes common sense. It's just until somebody gets us to pause and think about it, we've developed a lot of bad habits that maybe push us in some not great directions. So it's good to remind people of the simple. The first draft of the screenplay for The Sixth Sense looks a lot different from what you see on screen. In that version, the character Cole was a crime scene photographer, and the plot revolved around a serial killer. The movie's famous ending was only introduced in the script's fifth draft. That's a testament to the power of feedback. You're not going to get things right on your first draft, so make sure you're getting another perspective. Yeah, it can take a ton of different forms, but it can be as easy as, you know, the next time you find yourself making a graph that you're going to use in a presentation or a presentation that you're about to present, tap someone on the shoulder across the hall or, you know, virtually grab somebody and share it with them and get their perspective. And doing so does a couple of things. One, right, you get input from uh, someone who has a fresh perspective, which can be useful because we get so deep sometimes into our areas of expertise that it becomes, we lose sight of these things that are not tacit knowledge to everybody else. So that's very useful in helping frame things for your eventual audience who's going to naturally be more distanced from your work than you are. But then the person who's giving you feedback gets benefit as well, right? One of those aspects of benefit is just the honing their logic, as I mentioned briefly a moment ago. But another is just now you've modeled that you're, you know, you put yourself in a vulnerable position and welcomed input as a result of that. And by the way, if you ask for feedback, always listen and try to incorporate something from that feedback into your work. But now you've modeled that process for the other person as well, which means they are now more likely the next time they're doing something to reach out, whether it's to you or to somebody else now and get feedback. And that's the way that good feedback can start is just this grassroots sort of, we start checking our work with each other. We have better conversations about it. We do better work now as a result of all of these things. And then you imagine that at scale and that becomes really powerful. It takes time, right? So it does take support to be able to do that and spend the time on these parts of the process. But the communication of the data is the part that it, that's the part where the work either succeeds or fails. So I think the more as organizations are looking to build their cultures around data, the more support that you can give, whether it's resources or honestly just the time for people to be able to spend practicing and giving feedback and honing how they're talking about their data, how they're showing their data, that all of that is going to pay off in positive ways. This idea of a culture of vulnerability, I think is a super critical aspect to building a culture of data because on some level, the idea that you could be wrong, is exactly what data is all about, right? That, I mean, if we all came in with our biases and our assumptions and, you know, we were all right, then that sort of is 
you know, a top-down, highest-paid person opinion kind of a culture, uh, the, the hippo culture, as it were. And so this idea of saying, look, you need to be vulnerable in the work itself, but also that everybody has to be vulnerable in getting feedback, so critical to this notion of sort of letting the data tell you something more directly. Well, and one way to do that, by the way, and particularly if it feels scary or countercultural to how things have been done is to start off, don't make it about the day-to-day work. You can, you know, have something where at the weekly team meeting, you know, everybody's in charge of finding a graph in the media. And then, you know, a week at a time or a month at a time, you talk about each of these and talk about what works well or what doesn't work well, or look for examples that are outside of the day-to-day work, because if it feels like the stakes are too high in the workplace, then this could be one way of just getting people used to critiquing other people's work and having those sorts of discussions. Or another place that so we have an active online community where people can post feedback requests. We have an exercise bank. We also run a monthly challenge where each month the topic varies. And the whole goal is that it be a safe space in which people can practice and flex their skills and try new things and see what works and what doesn't and give each other feedback. And so you could think about undertaking that as part of a team, right? Where each month we do this challenge or we come up with our own challenges and we talk about them and then increase Increasingly, it becomes easier to talk about getting your feedback and, and having those sorts of fruitful exchanges in the day-to-day work as well. There's so much more to being a data radical than knowing the data. Telling compelling stories with our data can help organizations make better decisions. It can also help us get everything we want out of our careers. So the next time you're getting ready to deliver an amazing presentation, keep this conversation in mind. Maybe even go revisit The Sixth Sense or another one of your favorite movies. Think about what elements make the movie so effective and how you can deliver that same impact. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Are you curious to know how data governance might actually be good for your business? This webinar with Jean Laganza, Research Director from Forrester, explains how to align people, process, and technology for a growth-oriented governance initiative. Check it out at elation.com slash YouTube.